Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. All right. Welcome, everybody. Happy Labor Day. I did get a few messages from people going like, do we have class tonight or not? <laughs> Holidays. Um, I hardly ever miss a Monday. I mean, if I'm out of town, usually I'll have a substitute. Um, sometimes we'll like, if we're like right around Christmas, maybe I'll skip a, you know, cancel a Monday night, but pretty much uh, always doing this Monday night class. And sometimes uh, I like to reflect on that I've been teaching uh, some version of a this Monday night class or a weekly uh, evening class either here in Los Angeles for I think 17 years now and um, before that New York City for a couple of years San Francisco for a couple about four or five years before that so it's like 20 close to 25 years of this community gathering um, in different places and different uh, to, to meditate and discuss the Buddha's teachings, the, the Dharma. And uh, so welcome anybody here for the first time tonight. Welcome, welcome. Welcome back, everyone else. Anybody at home visiting for the first time, welcome. Against the Stream is uh, a Buddhist center. And the intention, my intention of... Uh, Teaching Buddhism first and foremost is out of gratitude for, uh, I just feel so appreciative of how practicing Buddhism changed my life and to decrease the amount of suffering in my life and increase the amount of joy. And so I felt so, I feel so grateful for it that I want to share it. I want to, <laughs> I want to pass it on. And so I've been doing that for a long time. And part of it is the teaching itself and learning about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, the, the core tenets of the Buddhist philosophy. And that's a part of it, is like learn, getting educated, intellectually understanding um, reality. Um, but meditation, in order to like kind of our, our thinking process will only take us so far from a Buddhist perspective. And so meditation is necessary to actually embody what the Buddha taught, the reality, the, the nature of the way things are, has to be directly experienced, not just understood. And maybe it's the difference between um, knowledge and wisdom. Um, sometimes I'm like, well, what does, you know, you can use those terms interchangeably, but knowledge, like you can know a lot of shit, right? You could read a few books and know, have a lot of knowledge about Buddhism. It doesn't necessarily mean we have wisdom. Wisdom is when we can actually apply it, when we actually feel it, we can embody uh, like knowledge of non-attachment is not the experience of non-attachment. <laughs> uh, knowledge of compassion is not the experience of a compassionate feeling or response. So a lot of what we're doing uh, is trying to develop wisdom. So there's a knowledge piece, you know, I'll give you the teachings and you get to reflect on them. And, but then we meditate and we uh, 
contemplate and we try to integrate these teachings into wise actions in our lives and wise uh, understanding in our heart and in our mind. The third piece is community, is the importance and necessity, one of the core tenets of the Buddha's teachings was that it's relational, that it's not a philosophy, a knowledge, a, a psychology that is to be practiced in isolation, but that it's to be engaged in how we listen to each other, how we talk to each other, gathering together regularly. And so it's, it's a huge part of why um, this community actually has a meditation center and doesn't just, you know, kind of do a, a once a night, a once a week sort of rental at some church basement somewhere, but that we actually have a home for the community to gather regularly and connect and support each other and annoy the shit out of each other sometimes and, and really have the uh, wisdom of forgiveness rather than forgiveness is a good idea. We, you know, we come together and we uh, probably, you know, I got a phone call from somebody in a kind of extended Sangha today about how someone else in the Sangha was really acting inappropriately. And I was like, yeah, you know, listened and, and then, but ultimately it was like, this is your practice to deal with people who are acting inappropriately and not to cancel them, not to kick them out, but to tolerate the shit out of them for your own compassionate wisdom, that this is our practice. Now, you know, ultimately I also said <clears throat> at some point you can ask people to leave if they're acting really inappropriately or, you know, at some point you might even say you're not welcome here if people are really uh, causing a lot of harm in a long-term way, but. All of that, you know, the relational piece, um, is that in my experience, in my early meditation practice, I went to these weekly groups and uh, I would come in and I would sit down and I would meditate and I would listen to the talk and then I'd leave. And I went for a long time before I even started to know the people that I was sitting next to every week. And I was going twice a week and I was, I was part of it, but I didn't know anybody in the room. I didn't really want to know anybody in the room. They were all old hippies and I was a young punk. and. Um, but I just never really felt like I was part of the community. I felt like I was getting the knowledge of Buddhism and I was starting to get, uh, you know, some wisdom that mindfulness was bringing through the meditation practice. Long-winded way of a little trying um, and to facilitate people connecting. And I feel a bit more, um, cautious about it now because of COVID and uh, some level, level of a surge in people's uh, conscious, uh, you know, um, concern about it. I like to have people introduce yourselves to people you don't know so that you start to meet each other in the, in the community. At home, it's uh, safer. We can't uh, transmit COVID through the Zoom chat rooms, but here in person, you know, and I encourage you to you know, wear your mask if, you know, if you have, um, you want to be cautious, want to be responsible, um, welcome to wear your mask. I'm not enforcing masks. Um, I allow adults to make their own choices about this, but I, I encourage it. I support it. It's up to you. 
and uh, again, long-winded way of me asking you to now uh, turn towards some people and introduce yourselves and just you know say hello to some people in the room you don't know yet. Same with you guys online. I will put you into Zoom breakout rooms.
So I know that that's, you know, a, a brief, briefly introducing yourself to, to people isn't a deep community connection, but at least it's a start. If you come regularly, you start to recognize each other and actually remember each other's names and, and, um, and you know, really uh, the Buddha's teaching is not just like self-help for you and your isolated life. It's about um, developing and sustaining community and Buddhist communities. And uh, there's one point where the Buddha says something like um, he, he's sort of prophesizing about like how long his teaching will live in the world. And he says, as long as people gather regularly to share these teachings and to practice these teachings, it will last for hundreds of years. Um, but as soon as it becomes something that's just in books or just on your app <laughs> and you're only meditating on your app uh, and you're not actually engaging in community to have human relationships about this very important uh, process of awakening, um, that, that it will no longer, no longer exist in, in the ways that it's meant to exist anyways. Um, so let's meditate together. I'll give some instructions, find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed, find a posture that feels sustainable. Ranging the posture so that the spine is erect without being rigid or stiff. Allowing the rest of the body to relax around the upright spine. Softening tension in the head and face, eyes and jaw. Scanning the attention down into the neck and shoulders and trunk of the body with the intention to soften. Sometimes the image is used of the silk scarf hanging around a pole, the pole being the spine and the rest of your body just hanging loosely around the upright spine. Establishing mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental, kind, investigative awareness. Present time, non-judgmental, kind, interested or investigated attention or awareness. Starting with your body itself. Present time awareness of the body sitting. taking a moment to establish an inner attitude of goodwill or friendliness, what we call metta, 
loving kindness. Setting the intention to be friendly and kind towards yourself, towards your mind, your body. with the intention to be friendly, directing our mindfulness to the sensations of the breath. Spend the first few minutes just receiving the sensations that the breath creates at the nostrils. Letting everything else recede to the background, thoughts, Emotions, other sensations. We're not trying to push. We're allowing the breath to be the foreground, the focus of our attention. Perhaps noting in as you breathe in, out as you exhale.
course, the attention gets drawn back into thinking, planning, remembering. Remember the non-judgmental aspect of mindfulness, which is bringing awareness. So this is thinking, this is a plan. And rather than continuing to indulge in that plan or memory, choose to disengage, bring the attention back to the breath, but do so in a gentle way, a friendly approach works best. The technique of noting in and out can be helpful. Also, when your attention wanders, you can note that it has wandered, label thinking or hearing, feeling another sensation in your body. But we're gathering the attention by continually returning to the breath.
could choose to stay with the breath for the whole practice. The breath itself can teach us so much about reality. The impermanent nature of sensation. the impersonal nature of this human body that just breathes all by itself. The heart that beats all by itself, the mind that thinks all by itself. The breath itself, waking us up to the impersonal, not self reality. The Buddha's teachings on mindfulness expand beyond mindfulness of the breath to the whole body, sensations, emotions felt in the body, the sense doors of hearing and seeing, smelling and tasting. non-judgmental present time awareness of this physical form and the doors of perception of knowing. as we expand and become more inclusive with our attention, no longer needing to come back to the breath, encouragement 
to be open and investigative, mindful of the impermanent nature of sounds, of sensations, smell and taste, and thoughts and emotions, rather than ignoring the mind, including the thoughts, observing the arising and passing of the mental proliferation, whatever comes into your mind, just be mindful of it rather than fighting against it, rather than judging it, just know it. This is fear, this is craving. This is gratitude, this is tranquility. Sometimes the mind does settle, become somewhat quiet. And attune your attention to not just what's happening, what kind of thoughts are passing through or emotions are present, but what's the feeling tone? What are you experiencing as pleasant? Where is there pleasure in your direct experience? Anything feeling 
likable, agreeable, parts of the body that are comfortable, some of the thoughts or emotions passing through the heart and mind that are pleasant thoughts, pleasant feelings. Not trying to manufacture anything, just looking for what's happening in the feeling tone, perception of pleasure. We incline our heart and mind towards non-attached appreciation, the wise response, wisdom of non-clinging. And when we feel unpleasant, perhaps pain in the body from sitting still, difficult, unpleasant emotions or thoughts. We find the sound of the traffic unpleasant, or perhaps the temperature in the room unpleasant. Becoming aware of that rather than trying to change it, accepting it as it is, with the intention of tolerance, friendliness, mercy, inclining the heart towards compassion, towards our own pain. rather than needing to get rid of discomfort, learning to be with it, with an attitude of friendliness and care.
our attention is often drawn towards what's unpleasant, a survival instinct of aversion, thinking we need to get away from the pain, causes more and more suffering in our life. This invitation and mindfulness is to turn towards the pain, learn to be with it. Tending with friendliness, with mercy, increasing our tolerance for reality, which is often unpleasant. For the last couple of minutes, try to attune to what in your direct experience right now is what we call neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. What sensations in the body? Where is it not painful? Before I um, launch into my talk for tonight, any questions about the meditation instructions or how to uh, apply these Buddhist mindfulness techniques to your 
experience either at home you can raise your hand in the participants or in your little box raise your hand or anybody here any questions about the meditation practice itself In my brain wants to constantly like solve stuff and plan stuff and I'm like stop 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 just concentrate on the breathing. Um, so I guess just actually um, maybe you can give me some tips on how to quiet that down because the only thing I could do, which actually I learned a while ago, at a against the stream over in Colorado, and um, it was like just find little sensations on my body to put my attention there, like an ache or a hair crossing or something. And I was able to just like pinpoint, jump around to those little points and just to stop, stop it. And then I was like, okay, then now I can kind of just concentrate on my breathing. Mm -hmm. Any other techniques on to get to that point? Could you hear him good enough at home or should I repeat it? Good enough? I see some heads saying yes and some not so sure. Anyways, good. We'll, we'll assume you heard him. Um, and I'll try to answer it in uh, one. It's partially just um, uh, the way that you said the question. I want to invite you to um, to remember that uh, we're not trying to stop our thoughts. Right. And that there is that kind of like, but I want it to fucking stop. <laughs> but it's not what mindfulness is about. Uh, if you're doing a strict concentration practice, then there is more intention to really turn the mind off and get, you know, laser focused and, you know, experience that deep concentration. Um, but it's not the Buddha's teaching on mindfulness is, as you hear in the instructions, in the beginning, pay attention to your breath as an anchor, but then open to your mind and observe the thoughts arising and passing. And I forget exactly what you said, but the sort of planning, the to-do list, the kind of uh, busyness of the mind. And what we're doing in mindfulness is just watching that. Oh, wow, look at my mind's quite has a lot of shit to do. <laughs> A lot of suggestions, a lot of advice, a lot of judgments, a lot of fears, a lot of, and just being with that. Okay, the mind is fearing, the mind is judging, the mind is planning, it's worrying and observing. That's what my mind is doing. We don't need to turn it off. And so I feel like this is the biggest piece is just giving yourself permission it's not permission to sit here and think about your life the whole time because that's sort of a waste of time, but your mind's gonna do that. So permission to stop trying to stop it and to just let the thoughts be, stop the adversarial. And this is not just for, this is for all of us. Stop the adversarial relationship to the thinking mind as though there's something wrong with thinking. It's a little bit like, what if we had that same attitude towards our breathing? Like for some reason we thought, when I meditate, I'm not supposed to breathe. It's like, no, idiot, you're not, not you, all of us. Your body breathes all by itself. You can't stop it from breathing. 
Or if you thought like a, a good meditation is like stopping my heart. <laughs> like we know if you stop your heart or your stop breathing, you die. So we don't think, but the point is the body breathes all by itself. The heart beats all by itself. The mind thinks it's the mind's job. Meditation is not about stopping your thoughts, not mindfulness, not, not the kind of core of Buddhist liberation. Meditation is not about stopping your thoughts. It's not about quieting. It's not about silence. It's not about, it's about not suffering about what your mind is doing. <laughs> and it's such a different shift around kind of just like, oh yeah, look at all of that rage in my mind with a, that's unpleasant and it's arising and it's passing rather than I have to get rid of all of this lust, all of this rage, all of this planning. I have to get rid of all of it in order to be happy. And it's just unrealistic. The, you know, the Buddha was like, be mindful of the breath, be mindful of the body, be mindful of the emotions and the thoughts. Present time, non-judgmental, right? We're missing that. And I'm not picking, I'm not trying to pick on you because this is the common misperception for so many meditators where they miss the sort of non-judgmental uh, awareness of the mind and we're judging it and we're thinking, I shouldn't be thinking. Of course you're fucking thinking. You're alive, you're breathing, your heart's beating, your mind is thinking about some shit. And then, you know, at some point you can, sometimes it settles. Sometimes you come into meditation, there's that image that's used of, um, you know, like if you have a glass of water with some sediment, some dirt, and it's all stirred up. And so sometimes when you sit down to meditate and you see like, wow, there's like swirling plans and worries and, you know, desires. And, and then sometimes after a few minutes of coming back to the body and there's a, a way in which the mind can settle and the sediment kind of settles. And my favorite image for um this sort of potential of what we're doing with mindfulness is from Ajahn Chah. You've probably heard it. I say it all the time. He says, first of all, we can break this whole thing down into just letting go. Stop trying to control your mind. Let go. Stop trying to cling to outcomes. Let go. So I'm trying, you know, whatever we're clinging to, aver aversion and clinging and let go. It says, if you let go a little bit, you'll have a little bit of sense of well-being, a little bit less suffering. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of feeling of freedom. Like, whoa, what a relief to not be so attached and so aversive and so self-centered. Wow, this non-attachment feels great even in the midst of pain, right? And I think that's important, like non-aversion, non non-attachment, even when it's really unpleasant. Wow, so much better than when it's unpleasant and I'm hating it. And I'm, right, I'm suffering on top of the suffering, <laughs> adding the layers. And then he says, if you let go absolutely, like, full non-clinging acceptance of reality as it is, including the mind's dysfunctional tendencies, <laughs> self-centered tendency. He says, then sometimes the mind will become quiet and still. 
you know, the experience of tranquility, the experience of serenity, the experience of, so sometimes this will happen in meditation It become pretty quiet and still. He, but then he uses this great image. He says, but all kinds of strange and wonderful animals will come to drink from the stillness because it, it says it's still like a forest pool. And so you get this image of, you know, this sort of tranquil little pool of, you know, a little pond in the midst of some jungle or some, he says, and it's like, it's quite quiet there, but then all of these strange and wonderful animals will come to drink from it. And those are thoughts and emotions. So even in, you know, even when your mind's not loud, even when it quiets down and settles, thoughts still arise, including thoughts of joy and gratitude and equanimity. Those are all experienced through the mind. Wisdom thoughts are coming through the mind. So if we really even had the ability to turn off our minds, you wouldn't actually be able to develop wisdom because the mind is the uh, perceiver of the wisdom. So we want to turn it off because it's also the cause of almost all of our suffering. <laughs> so we're like, shut that shit off because it's causing me suffering. But it's through turning towards it, changing our relationship to it, that we get to start seeing the arising of the strange and wonderful animals of wisdom arising in as thoughts in the mind. And I know that was a long-winded way of saying um, what you're doing of coming back to the breath is good. It's the initial few minutes of instructions. Finding other what we call touch points, places in the body, contact of your ass on the cushion, how your hands are resting, bringing attention to those places in the body will help kind of ground, disengage from the mind, come back to the breath. And then the invitation, is, but just non-contentiousness with your mind, you know, just shifting the attitude of like, Thinking is okay. The mind's job is to think. I'm trying not to indulge and be involved in the contents of what my mind wants to think about right now. Trying to come back to the breath and body, but thinking is okay. I'm not trying to stop it. Hope that's useful. All right, I'll jump into some reflections on there's um, said to be three uh, core aspects of reality. And um, one is that everything's impermanent. We talk about that a lot. I talk about that a lot. And it's maybe the, the initial insight that we have when you sit down to meditate and say, oh, my thoughts arise and pass. My breath comes and goes. Sensations that are really painful in one moment are gone, you know, a couple minutes later. And you start to wake up to the impermanent nature of, of reality in the body, both internally and externally. Uh, the other one, and I'm not going to, I'm going to talk about the middle one. The other one is, uh, and I, I pointed it to in the meditation tonight, uh, impersonal or not self. That when we deeply investigate this human form, you will, know, you will not find a permanent, unchanging self. That feeling of I am, 
I am me and I've always been me and I will always be me <laughs> uh, is a misperception, right? The, the, the impermanent arising and passing and changing uh, nature of self is missed and we feel so solid and we feel so continuous and separate and, um, and can get stuck in, in uh, reactivity to experiences that happened years ago or decades ago or so it's not so i like to talk about that in a simple way as impersonal so everything's impermanent and i don't know that we can say everything's impersonal but on some level there's just no personal self here to be found and you don't don't believe me but keep looking <laughs> for yourself find where it is you know neuroscience and uh you know they keep investigating the brain like where's the self in this brain where is it is it in the body is it in the brain and they can't find the sort of uh generates consciousness like they don't know um so the piece that i wanted to talk about was uh, impermanent, impersonal, and sometimes what I translate as uh, unsatisfactory or unreliable or uncertain. Nature of like, because everything's impermanent, nothing is permanently satisfactory. Every satis everything that feels great and satisfying passes um and because of impermanence nothing is reliable there is no security which kind of sucks right sort of unpleasant <laughs> to really acknowledge that oh, i so badly there's something in our survival instinct and in our biological evolution that just craves stability craves certainty craves uh something to rely on some sort of a reliable refuge and how much of our lives have we spent looking for that outside of ourselves looking for the answers one of my favorite Hindu punk rock bands, Shelter, had a, um, a record in the 90s that was called The Quest for Certainty. And, you know, it was all kinds of reflections about uh, these guys, you know, being young punk rockers and then looking for the truth and looking, getting into spirituality, looking for the truth and ending up in a kind of Hindu Hare Krishna devotional uh, kind of bhakti spiritual path and, uh, uh, and finding certainty in religion, finding certainty in bhakti devotional Hindu religion. Like we know this is the way it is. Krishna is the Godhead and we are devoted and we chant and we, and this is, there's certainty. 
quest for certainty and just um reflect for yourself how many how many dead ends have you been down so far looking for certainty looking for a reliable So interesting to look back at all of the times that we were so certain this is it, this relationship, this teaching, this band, this material thing, this job, what, you know, whatever it is where we've kind of been like, this is going to be the source, this is going to work. And then later kind of figuring out like, oh, that, that didn't last. I don't even like that fucking band anymore. People spending years of their lives going on tour and then going, God, the Grateful Dead is terrible. What was I? It's just the LSD the whole time. Thinking of this partially because um, I'm doing this course on Ajahn Sumedho, Lungpur Sumedho. And he has just, uh, it's, it's a core part of his teaching, but he just has all of these stories about uh, his teacher, Ajahn Chah, who I was just talking about. And, and um, talk I was listening to last week where he's like, you know, as a young monk uh, in the monastery in, in Thailand and about how he just like would go to his teacher the abbot go to Ajahn Chah and be like you know we really need to change some shit around here you know this monastery used to be so good and now there's all of these annoying monks and we gotta get rid of them and you know and that Ajahn Chah was would be so um just relaxed with an attitude of like well it's the way it is and you know, uh, we'll see, let's see what happens. Just that sort of openness and acceptance and rather than uh, Sumedho's certainty of like, this place would be way better if we changed A, B and C. And then the, the, the wise elder kind of saying like, well, let's just accept it as it is and see how good it can be just like this, rather than it has to change in order for me to be happy what if you just are happy at ease content rather than uh, depending on relying on it to be more pleasant and so i just feel so inspired because i see how often my mind is wants to fix it what if we change this or what if we change that or so there's that level of what we're being asked for is to understand that everything's impermanent that so much of what's happening is impersonal including the thinking mind and the emotions and it's just the human condition craving is not your fault it's not a sin it's not a 
Uh, you're not doing something wrong because you're thinking about yourself all of the time. It's just what the human mind does. You're not a self-centered narcissist because you think, I mean, maybe you are, maybe I am, maybe we all are on some level, but it's just what the human mind does. And, and it's easy also to turn our study and practice of Buddhism into another quest for certainty, into another religious doctrine, and become a fundamentalist. This is, you know, according to the Buddha, this is the way it is. Even though we, are have, we have that knowledge, even though we don't have that wisdom yet, we're not embodying non-attachment all of the time, but we're going around telling everybody else you should really let go. We're not embodying compassion all of the time, but we're going around kind of judging the lack of compassion in the world. Part of the kind of desire for certainty and security and, and comfort um, that can drive us to like, well, why are we meditating? Why, why, are, we, why are we doing this? I'm like, well, I'm looking for some relief. I've been suffering a lot. I'm hoping that this will help alleviate my suffering some, decrease it at least. And then we can start to try to use um, the teachings to comfort ourselves. I saw this in my own practice a bunch of years ago. I was doing a, a few days solo kind of vision quest in the forest up in the Redwoods, Santa Cruz. And I was by myself and I was in this little circle and I was fasting and I was um, about three days in and I wouldn't leave the circle and I was underneath the redwoods and, um, and I just, all of this fear was arising. And at some point pretty early on, I realized I'm sitting like underneath a cliff with like, you know, the roots of trees, you know, sort of hanging, <laughs> hanging off and, and um, the wind storms are coming through and, you know, the redwoods are old and, you know, but they're swaying back and forth and there's branches falling here and there. And I just felt so like insecure. <laughs> and so, and I saw, and I was trying to just be mindful, but I saw that I started, I started to go back to um, some, like, I wanted to do loving kindness. I wanted to do I started chanting the refuges. I was doing all of these things to try to comfort myself. I wanted to use my Buddhist practice to not be afraid, to not be uh, insecure. I wanted to create a, a sort of feeling of internal refuge through my Buddhist practice, which may be nothing wrong with for, for certain stages of our development, but I just felt like, you know what, I'm in a place where what I really wanna do is just be okay being terrified without comforting myself 
just be okay, just be with the insecurity and the unreliable reality of impermanence and, and of like, yeah, one of these trees could fall on me, or the cliff could mudslide, could whatever, like, and just be in that level of not suicidal uh, kind of feeling, but just like acceptance of this is the way, this is where I'm at right now. And rather than using spiritual or religious practices as a comforting, there's this advanced level of Alan Watts wrote a book called The Wisdom of Insecurity. And so often looking at ourselves, and I see them looking for security rather than the wisdom of like, there's no security, there's no reliability, there's no, there's nothing worth clinging to. that that's a much higher wisdom than using our uh, practices to comfort ourselves all of the time. Now, if you're brand, I don't want to set this up. Like if you're brand new and you're really uncomfortable, mindfulness will help. Um, loving kindness will help. And then at some point, and it's like the, the um there's the image that is that that there's the preliminary practices it's like you're drowning in the sea of samsara and a raft comes along and that raft of the four noble truths the eightfold path the meditation instructions will take you to shore but when you get to shore you don't have to carry the raft on your head the rest of the journey you don't have to carry that raft around for the rest of your life being like, this fucking raft saved my life in the 90s. <laughs> At some point you put it down and you say, no, you know what, I'm, I'm here. I'm on the shore, I've you know, and I've learned some compassion and I've learned some non-attachment and I've, and now the advanced practice is radical acceptance of the reality that there's nothing worth clinging to nothing outside of ourselves worth clinging to but that we live with a mind and nervous system that is driving us to cling to find security to find uh something to rely on So what can we be certain about? Just reflecting for yourself. What can you really be certain about? The Zen master Suzuki Roshi said uh, the best, the best uh, attitude is the attitude of being a beginner. A kind of don't know mind, beginner's mind, rather than he said, there's something like there's very few options for experts when you know it all. He said, but if you can 
have that attitude of not knowing and of having a beginner's mind. There's so many more uh, possibilities, endless possibilities, if you don't know it all and have create a whole kind of false sense of security by knowing it all. No, 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 no. I really love that um, developing the attitude of we'll see connected with this uncertainty rather than because we have all our plans and our expectations and, and how much have you suffered in your life about things not working out the way you thought they were going to. But if you can train your mind to rather than it's going to be like this, I don't know what it's going to be like. We'll see. I have this intention. And even in your communication, and I feel like our, our, our communication can be so like, it's, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. And it's this sort of certainty, this kind of, I'll, I'll call you later. Um, see you next week. I'm guilty of it. I'll probably say it tonight. See you next week. Maybe. And so uh, even in communication, training ourselves to be like, well, we'll see. I was, I was trying to make plans. It's really annoying when people tell the truth. Um, I was trying to make plans with my, one of my teachers, Ajahn Amaro, to meet him in Thailand. And I'd been going for a few years to meet him and spend some time and study and practice. And, and I said, you know, are you going to be there in December around the same dates? And his reply was something like, it is my intention to do so. <laughs> I hope to. And it's just more honest. It's just more in line with reality rather than, yes, I'll be in, I'll be in Bangkok from the 7th to the 15th. And then he's like, who the fuck knows? I, my intention is to be in Bangkok and then I'm going to be, I think I'm going to be in Chiang Mai. And, but just even communicating like, yes, that's my intention rather than that's going to happen for sure. And the more we can use mindfulness the, uh, to understand impermanence and to let go of our clinging to things happening the way we think they're going to. Nothing wrong with having plans. You got to make plans, <laughs> right? We don't want to be so non-attached that, that we don't have any uh forward leading momentum in our lives you got to make some plans it's the clinging to it being the way you planned it that will create the suffering relying on it has to be this way I celebrated um, 33 years of um, practice last week and practice and recovery. And, and so I'll share with you what I kind of comes to mind right now of what I'm certain about at this point, 33 years in, and this might be different next year and it was probably different last year. And, but um, I'm really, certain that that these three characteristics that this is the truth 
I'm certain from my own direct experience that everything's impermanent. I haven't found anything um, where I'd be able to refute impermanence. Um, because of impermanence, I'm, I feel very certain that uh, when I cling to impermanent things, I create suffering for myself. I've seen that over and over and over and over. And so I feel really uh, convinced that non-attachment is the wisest response. And it's so hard, right? This, this sort of constant battle against this uh, mind, body, instinct that wants to cling. Non-attachment's not something that comes very naturally to us human beings, but I'm certain that it's the wisest response that I've found. Avoidance doesn't work very well. It's not a very sustainable um, method. Uh, ignorance doesn't work very well. <laughs> it's not very sustainable. But being with what is without clinging to it, I'm, I feel really certain that this is uh, true. And not only that it's true, that it's um, possible. I want to say from my own trajectory over three decades that um, I'm getting better at it. The longer I meditate, the more I reflect, the more I... It's getting easier to not be so attached and have so many expectations and to not suffer so much when things don't work out the way I thought they were going to work out. I've had a lot of opportunity the last few years to really put that into practice in big ways in our community and my marriage ending, my father killing himself, like all of these big opportunities to be like, okay, how attached am I? How much am I going to suffer about these painful situations? And seeing like, oh, yeah, you know, without 30 years of trying to be less attached and more compassionate, um, would have been so hard to navigate, you know, the things that have transpired in my personal life and in our community. And I feel certain that uh, compassion is the only wise response to pain. It's not my only response to pain. I respond to pain with anger and fear and judgment and all the time. But, it's, but I know that the only thing that really is a truly appropriate and really works is when I can meet my pain or the pain of others with friendliness and acceptance and, and care, mercy and compassion. I feel I don't have any doubt that compassion is the right thing, the wisest possible relationship to pain. I feel certain about that. That's about it. <laughs> That's about it, you know, like non-attachment and compassion. You know, I wanna say that I feel certain that there is no self you know, this third characteristic and anatta. Um, I've had glimpses. It makes sense what the Buddha is saying, like I can unpack that there's no permanent 
solid separate self here but mostly i walk around feeling like oh, nope i'm me you're you <laughs> um so I haven't, I haven't had deep enough insight into anatta to be like i am certain that there is no self <laughs> or no permanent continuous self uh, and it's one of the reasons why i like to talk about it as impersonal and just like the human condition and it's just the body craves human bodies we it's it's universal and so i can see that part i'm i'm certain that like the craving aversion self-centeredness of human beings is not our fault it's not because you're doing something wrong it's just evolutionary biology instinctual drives left unchecked it's destroying the planet and destroying relationships and destroying you know kind of it's everything that's wrong with this world <laughs> is part of the natural evolutionary biology of humans mostly the craving the aversion the hatred all of that is natural survival instinct it's just left unchecked it becomes oppression it becomes sexism it becomes racism it becomes corporate greed and political power you know like all of that is just in us it's in each one of us you know racists aren't some out there somewhere it's it's in the human mind greed isn't you know just jeff bezos it's in each one of us and in that way it's not that personal and and it's where i feel so much gratitude for having found the dharma and and the willingness to continue practicing it um, throughout you know two-thirds of my life not quite two-thirds but something like that and um because i'm convinced that blind faith is a dead end uh, and i don't have blind faith in buddhism there's a lot of buddhist stuff that i'm very happy to question critique um but direct experimental experiential investigation of okay here's the practices here's the teachings how do they work how do they function how do we directly experience them and the more we sit and learn to be uncomfortable rather than running from our pain. We see that it's arising and passing. And the more that we turn towards the joy and the pleasure and see that tendency to, ooh, I wanna keep this and just relax back into letting it arise and pass, not trying to create a reliable refuge in pleasure or people or places or things. 
I think that's all I got. What is any questions, comments, clarifications, discussion before we end tonight? If you have a question at home, you can raise your hand. Richard, go ahead and jump in. Yeah, good to see you, Noah. Thanks. Um, so I'm thinking about the three characteristics of existence, and I'm thinking about um, the three jewels, especially Sangha, and how we rely on Sangha um, as part of our practice, part of my practice, uh, take refuge in Sangha. And yet my experience uh, of others in Sangha, as well as myself, is that it can be disappointing and it can be um, incomplete. I mean, looking to make connection, looking to rely on others for mutual support, for communication, for understanding can be disappointing. And I've disappointed others. I'm not blaming anybody by saying this. So it just leaves me wondering is like, what does this mean to take refuge in Sangha? You know, unfortunately, could everybody hear a question about taking refuge in Sangha? Uh, I think, you know, unfortunately, sometimes Sangha uh, gives more opportunities for forgiveness and tolerance <laughs> and um, than it does for loving support. Sometimes, right, there's the ideal, like we hope that, and even the kind of taking, the term taking refuge, then there's the craving for, well, I hope this is a pleasant refuge, right? Like if, if the Sangha, if the community is, is gonna be my refuge, well, I hope it's really comfortable here. <laughs> um, but remember that a huge part of the Buddha's teaching is like not about getting comfortable, but about getting free getting free from aversion to difficult interactions, aversion to uh, difficult personalities and lack of support and, and all of that. And, and I know that you've heard me um, share that image of that one of my teachers shared with me when I was kind of had the same question of like, I'm pretty new to practice. And now I'm, I was like working at Spirit Rock um, I wasn't that, I was probably, you know, probably 10 years into my practice and I started working at Spirit Rock and, and one of the teachers took me aside and he said, you know, you're gonna, I just, you know, I can see it in your eyes, how fucking disappointed you're gonna be <laughs> when you get to really be in the middle of the Sangha in this community. Cause I can just see that you like think that like people are going to act appropriately and they're not. And the teachers that you've been looking up to, when you start having lunch with them, you're going to see they're grumpy, they're judgmental, they're, you know, like, he said, think of it this way, the Sangha as a rock tumbler. And that uh, all of us have jagged edges. And we come into the community with jagged edges and the tumbler is that sort of cylinder. And then they spin around and we bounce off each other and we, you know. And over the years, we start to smooth out some of our edges and we become less critical and less difficult and less uh, unpleasant to be around. And so sometimes, you know, uh, the Sangha is giving us more opportunities for smoothing out our judgmental issues uh, tendencies than it is for like really being held in loving support 
and that we're kind of left to our compassion practices and our forgiveness practices and our perseverance of just keep showing up. Just keep showing up. I know that's not um, exactly what you want to hear, but your direct experience is showing you it's the way it is right now. It is the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's reality. So I appreciate the, the truth of that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Phoenix, go ahead. Hey, Noah, thank you. Um, yeah, I guess I've just been looking for different uh, places in my life I can try and practice mindfulness. Like maybe I look for places that you wouldn't really uh, initially think to, I guess. So over the weekend I had a big fucking tattoo and... I hate needles, so I was like, okay, like, two hours initial thought was like, this is going to be awful, uh, <laughs> there's like no way I'm going to get through it, and my second thought was like, okay, maybe I can, like, try to, you know, have even a little bit of mindfulness in this, and it will, like, make it easier, um, and it was really weird and really difficult, and I'm not even sure I... I made it easier or harder on myself but i liked what you were saying earlier um where like sometimes we like initially can use the dharma to help like make things more comfortable and sometimes like the more advanced thing becomes to like the radical acceptance uh and i'm not quite sure how to phrase my question but like for tattoos I guess, or just extremely painful events like that. Uh, like, what would you say in your experience has helped with that? Because I'm planning on getting a few more. <laughs> <laughs> I've been um, tattooed a couple times myself. <laughs> and um, it's, it's the... Um, tightening around pain the aversion you know that kind of it hurts and you want to tighten your belly or your jaw or your you know around the sensation that makes it hurt more and we think we're kind of bracing ourselves against but mindfulness starts to teach us and meditation starts to teach us that actually if we soften into it if we can just for a moment at a time, a breath at a time, softening into, relaxing into the discomfort, just like we're doing in sitting meditation, um, that that's actually de decreased. It doesn't make it any less painful, but it makes there uh, less suffering on top of how fucking painful it is to get tattooed for hours at a time, or you know, even, even for a few minutes. It, it, it's an unpleasant sensation. But the more you practice mindfulness, uh, and also, um, for sure, my relationship to getting tattooed has changed over the years, but I, I still can't like sit through a whole, you know, three hour, four hour tattoo session and just be like totally relaxed. I tense and I soften, I tense and I soften, but I That's keep coming I... back to trying to soften and to know like second foundation of mindfulness, just unpleasant sensation that I'm choosing. 
I always see my, my own mind kind of goes to like, yeah, idiot, why do you keep <laughs> choosing this? Why do you keep doing this over and over to yourself? It fucking hurts. And I'm just like, okay, judging mind, soften. <laughs> judging mind, soften. Um, so it'll, you know, that's, I think it sounds like that's what you're trying to do. And that's, that's what I, that's what I try to do too. Yeah. I never really, I never really do it because usually I'm getting tattooed by people who are like friends, um, people that I know on some level, but the sound of the tattoo machine definitely makes it worse. Cause there's that like fear of it, um, coming. So like listening, listening to music and ignoring the sound, actually the sensation isn't as bad. Um, if you're not hearing the machine. I don't often do it that much because in my experience, because I feel rude towards my friend who's tattooing me. I'm just like, fuck you. I'm listening to music. Oh, that's awesome. I relate to that a lot. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah. Welcome. All right. We'll end there for tonight. Thank you. Uh, good to see everybody at home. There's a uh, classes done. Um, by donation, Against the Stream is a nonprofit organization that uh, is supported by and relies on your generosity. If you um, feel motivated to, uh, one of the really wonderful ways to support Against the Stream is to become a monthly supporter um, and to say, you know, each month I'll give, I think there's options, $25, $50, or $100, um, just auto deposit to help us pay the rent and help us support the center. And so if you can, if you're financially in the uh, place where you can do that, it's very helpful. Um, obviously we don't charge. We're not charging for the Zoom classes. We're not charging for the people coming here in person. All of the 20 something years that I've been teaching the drop-in meditation classes. I've never charged for them. It's always offered freely and supported by your donations. So please be generous in your donations. Suggested donation is like 15 to $20, but everyone is welcome regardless of ability to donate. There's still some room in the October 10th through 17th retreat in Joshua Tree. If you want to come and do a intensive silent meditation retreat. Sign up on the website against the stream.com. And uh, it's my intention to come teach class next <laughs> Monday. And uh, maybe I'll see you then. Many goodness that comes from our practice be gathered and shared outward in all directions with all living beings. May each one of us free ourselves from suffering as much as we can in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks. See you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.